Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino's Security Confidential. Today, we have a very special guest, and we're really honored and fortunate to have her. She is Michelle Wucker. She is a strategist, and she is an author. She's a best-selling author. Uh, she coined the term the gray rhino, and um, she coined that term for obvious, probable, impactful risks, which are surprisingly likely but not condemned to neglect. She's a former media and think tank executive. She is founder of the Chicago-based advisory firm Gray Rhino and Company. We love the name, by the way. Uh, <laughs> she is the author of four books, including the influ influential global bestseller, The Gray Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore, and the newly released sequel, You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted. That, you know. Um, the name is is beautiful. We love it. Um, I'm sure we were before the, the uh, broadcast here, we were talking a little bit about how we found our name. I'd like to understand how you came up with the gray rhino uh, <laughs> and rever do a little role reversal here. To sure. Yeah. Well, um, I was in 2012, I was trying to find a way to uh, talk about a big question that was on my mind, which was uh, had to do with the difference between the Argentinian and the Greek debt crises. And without okay. getting into too much detail, you know, Argentina had a chance to turn things around. It was big and obvious. It was coming at it, and they didn't. And Greece, in spring of 2012, had just come to an agreement with its creditors after some very similar dynamics. And and I was really curious about why, what what made the difference. And I'd been really struggling with a way to talk about this that wasn't all debt geeky. You know, I came from the finance world before I went into the policy world. And I was talking to a friend and I said, you know, it's, it's big, it's coming at you. It's scary. And that's when this sort of horn pointed at you kind of popped into my head and it's like, it's two tons. So that was, that was the rhino. And, um, you know, it's, it's coming at you and it's giving you a choice of, of what you're going to do. And he made a joke about the black swan, which at the time was the, the, this being talked about all over the place in Wall Street as the completely improbable, unforeseeable thing that you just couldn't even you couldn't even predict because you couldn't even picture that it existed, and it, it became very badly misused after the, the financial crisis of, of uh, you know two thousand seven two thousand nine, yep. uh, because there were things that a lot of people saw coming and said that they saw this coming and people still didn't do anything, so you know I didn't really want to come up with something derivative of the black swan, but. But he was like, oh, you know, you could call it a black rhino. I was like, I don't want to do that. But it, isn't there something really called the black rhino? And, there, you know, isn't there also a white rhino? I went to the zoo when I was six years old, yeah. and I don't really remember this. You know, All so, endangered species. Yes. So I went to Wikipedia, and that's when I realized the black rhino is not black. The white rhino is not white. white. They're all gray, which is a really obvious thing that clearly is not getting its due because all the rhinos right. are called gray, but until now there wasn't anything called a gray rhino. So that was the kind the part of the metaphor that says, look, there's this big scary thing coming at you that's giving you a choice, but you're more likely to miss the ball than you think, and you're more likely to get trampled than you think, but you're not condemned. You've got a choice, and I want you to take it. And, and you know, the rhino's got just so much strength and force that often when I, when I show a video of a, a you know rhino coming at you, the people in the room all collectively gasp. And that's really the emotional connection that I was trying to 
create. So, you know, from policy, I know that you can't just tell someone, hey, this is a big problem. Here's all these spreadsheets and numbers that tell you how much value at risk and blah, 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 blah. Right, you know, right. Unless they connect emotionally, they don't get it. And so I wanted to do sort of what ESOP did and, you know, create, use, use an animal to create an emotional connection. And so that's how you got the gray rhino. That's uh, that's a fantastic story. I, I wish the, the picking of our name was as uh, interesting, but uh, you know, the dark rhino, we are in the background. We, we, we see the animal as signifying a lot of strength and stability. And, and that's what we're trying to bring to our clients. We're trying to help them reduce their overall risk profiles. That's the number one thing that we're doing um, when, when we're engaging with them. And, and it just uh, presented itself as a, it's a great icon for and metaphor for, for that thought. So. I, I love it. And I have to say, after the book came out, I, I, felt a little bit guilty about portraying the rhino as this this big danger because of course humans are more of a danger to rhinos than, than they are to yes. us and you know you talk about the strength of the rhino and one of my points is that you've got three choices you get trampled you get out of the way or you harness the strength of the rhino to to help you and that's really the direction that I try to push people uh, when I talk about gray rhino crises and how to apply the gray rhino theory to to these big obvious problems. Well, let's let's talk about that just briefly before we get into you are what you risk. And you know that is, you know, in, in our world, in the world of cybersecurity, again, risk is the beginning point of all conversation, and and how do you mitigate risk? But one of the things we encounter we encounter the gray rhino all the time, and the three choices that you outlined for us, it seems a lot of times companies, and I'm going to generalize because there's always exceptions out there, but their, their companies take the path of avoiding it. They don't, it's let's punt it down range, you know, let's, or let, let it be the status quo. What is the psychology behind that? Or, or why would, what's your findings around that? There's so many elements to that. And of course, of course, I wrote a whole book about it, but um, you wrote a whole, you hold, you hold several hundred pages, but, <laughs> but to sum up there, there are, are several reasons. Um, one is, has to do with whether people believe they have the power to do something about it or not. And of course you read a lot of these stories about, you know, companies having done, you know, whatever and still got hacked. You read the stories about how hackers, hackers are getting stronger and stronger all the time. And, you know, there's, there's all these surveys all the time about companies, how many companies think it's a big problem and how many companies feel that they're prepared. I mean, there's a pre pretty big gap there. So yes. that's one. It's the, whether you feel you have the ability to do something about it. Uh, the other part of it has to do with um, the way you perceive the risk or the threat. Humans are really bad at cost benefit analysis and at predicting, uh, you know, how, how risky something is. And there's also a part of our psychology that says, if we see a big benefit in something, yeah. then we're going to see it as less risky than it really is. So if you're thinking, okay, I can put my money into marketing this big product or, you know, doing whatever I want to put my money in, and that's where I'm focused on the money coming from, then my brain is going to automatically downplay the risks. And there's something called the optimism bias that, you know, similarly, you know, we tend to absorb information through rosy eyed glasses 
better than information that we don't really want to hear. And then another part of it is that that trying to head off a risk is risky in and of itself. You know, because if you do something to head off the risk and it works, then people are going to come back and say, oh, you're a Cassandra. This problem wasn't ever going to happen. So you were just, you know, out there crying wolf and, and right. you know, so you actually get punished for having prevented the thing from happening. And the other part of it has to do with, with groupthink. You know, if there are people in a room, it depends on the background of the people in the room. But if people are very similar to each other, one person says something and then everyone around the room is going to pretty much repeat the same thing. And unless you've got a culture of really promoting structured debate and having devil's advocates and really questioning things, you're likely to just, you know, let things slip through. So it's a, it's a combination of factors, but that, you know, you're going to be focused more on, on where you're more likely to make money rather than, you know, where you're going to prevent losing money. And we've seen that calculation not work out for so many companies again and again and again. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'll say it um, that I think there's also a big emotions a lot of times went out over logic. So if people are emotionally feeling that this is going to be a risk, this decision is a personal risk to them, a, a decision, even though it may be the right thing to do, they're not going to do it. They're going to go with, the status quo. It's a safer choice. Absolutely. And incentives are part of this too. That, you know, if you're working at some company and you're kind of looking at what the, you know, the next opportunity is down the road, you're hoping you get a promotion if you go to another company and, and you, know, you look at, you know, the number of years that people are spending at each job mm-hmm. is shrinking and shrinking. So you're looking at the odds that this thing's going to blow up in your face or after you're gone. And if it blows up after you're gone, then there are no consequences. So I think there, there really are some, uh, some perverse incentives out there. Which, and it, at uh, every level, it gets tied to your own personal risk fingerprint, which is um, where we would love to get a great understanding from you. Uh, I read that your book, uh, You Are What You Risk with Great Interest. Um, and, and as I mentioned, for me, it, it really helped me see the other side of the coin and see how people uh, become a little bit more empathetic towards their appetites for risk and, and maybe why they, they take a certain position. But let's start at the beginning here. You know, what is an individual's risk fingerprint? Can you help define it? Sure. So we, with a risk fingerprint, um, think of it like, you know, at a crime scene, uh, you know, the, the wine glass with the fingerprint from the the, the criminal you know, who put the poison into the wine glass to, yep. <laughs> and you know, the police are seeing, and there's, there's an imprint on that wine glass. And think of that imprint as all of the risk choices that you've made, you know, the ones that okay. went well and the ones that didn't. So this is something that, that, that identifies you to the whole world and it's unique, just like a real fingerprint is. So you look at the finger that made that print and there are all sorts of influences that go into it. And, and, Similarly, the risk fingerprint is basically all of the factors that go into the risk decisions that you make that identify you to the world. And then with the risk fingerprint, they define you. So it's a combination of your innate personality, your experiences, your values, what you're willing to lose, what you're not willing 
to lose your your social and cultural environment and even your physical environment because there's some very interesting uh, neurobiological influences on the kinds of risks that you take or not and so so just like a real fingerprint you've got a set of different kinds of influences and together those those define you and they tell the world who you are so I'm going to oversimplify this and ask a really dumb question here, but does nature or nurture win in defining your risk fingerprint? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, the, the answer is uh, it depends. <laughs> it depends. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of debate, of course, on, on innate personality, but there are, there are different parts of that. There's obviously your, your, your personality, like, you know, who you are. Some people are more naturally anxious and other people more calm. Some people are more impulsive. Some people are more methodical. Um, there's a tool called the risk type compass that I write about that actually measures some of that. And, you know, as you know, your environment is going to leave you you know, in one certain way. I mean, you know, my parents have very different attitudes towards risk, which probably is why I'm so obsessed with <laughs> with risk. Um, but, you know, the, the people around you, you can change the people around you. And so that's a kind of influence, you know, the, the nurture side of of influence. You know, your, your experiences certainly change you. You know, you cut your finger and that like, literally changes your fingerprint. But it also means that you're going to be a little more wary about knives in the future. So parts of these are are innate. There's certain parts of your personality that you can't change, but you can be aware of and change your habits, your environment, the people around you, the the, the temperature, and you can make good decisions about the risk, the risk that you take in different parts of, of your life. Have you seen um, one or two factors that stand out above the rest in shaping one's risk fingerprints. And, and the point of view that I'm asking this from is when, when you look at uh, someone that's suffered through uh, very grave circumstances and has come out on top, are they more prone and comfortable with getting out of their comfort zone and taking risks versus someone that may have grown up in a very middle-class life and life's been fairly secure, and and there's a nice easy path. Uh, and and I'll pick on the Indian diaspora for a second because I can. And uh, <laughs> so if you look in the Indian diaspora, uh, a lot of the people who immigrated here uh, they carry the attitude of for their kids initially that go become a doctor, go become an engineer. It's a safe bet, and uh, you know you'll have a good life. And, uh, you know, the thought of uh, a, a child, it used to be, it's not so much anymore, but it certainly used to be uh, doing something crazy like trying to be a rock star or become an artist of some kind would be not looked upon that well, right? So are, are, is there some circumstances uh, that really shine that change that risk appetite for people? Well, I think it's more how they work together. Um, you know, there's some people who can have experience a big shock and they're like, okay, well, I got through that. I can do anything. Uh, and you see some serial entrepreneurs who lose everything they go bankrupt a bunch of times and eventually they, sure. they do well. Uh, and then there's some other people who have a big shock and they are very conservative in the way they live their lives. Or, you know, I talked to a couple of uh, adult children of Holocaust survivors in the book 
and okay. you know those families are very very uh, very very conservative in a, in a lot of of things but you know it's funny that you mentioned the the indian jasper because one of the um one of the characters in the book is a, a young man uh, who i Aurora, met in right? chicago Yes, Agam Aurora, who, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I, I was gathering with a bunch of, of really, you know, brilliant, and I would say, you know, you know risk-seeking 20-somethings, and this was at the early stages of the research of the book, and so I asked him, I said, okay, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And the room's kind of quiet for a couple of minutes, and so he raises his hand, he's like, oh, I quit medical school to become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Yeah. And then that... everyone's like, how am I going to top that? But it was similar for him. You know, his, his parents were doctors and he'd been in medical school. It was sort of the quote unquote, you know, safe path. It was a thing he was supposed yep. to do, but he just absolutely hated it. And because he hated it, he wasn't very good at it. And eventually, you know, he just said, you know, for, forget it. And, um, and, you know, he oversimplified the story a, a little bit, I'd say. I mean, like one of the first things he did was to try to be a stand-up comic while he was doing a bunch of, of other you know, jobs he found on Craigslist and all sorts of things. Um, but it was an interesting set of circumstances for him because he had a very supportive family. Um, you know, they were able to support him financially. They were able to, you know, support him with, with networks and, and say, you know, we love you. We want you to do what, what, what makes you happy. And, and he went through a lot of uh, sort of trial and error till he found uh, a path. And so, you know, which is a combination of a, you know, a day job with uh, with some other philanthropic uh, enterprises. So right. it's you know it's, it's very interesting that you you happen to mention the the Indian diaspora because he's you know one of my favorite characters from the book. Well, you you know what it's um he it sounds like he has an exceptional family, right? Because for them to step up and say we're going to support you, I think that changes the equation tremendously. You know, if you're a young person with dreams and and you have a safety net. That changes your appetite, I would imagine, to take risk in in a very significant way. That um, may not be if if you have you're surviving and you don't have that background, right? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting and it's a great illustration of of how risk itself changes depending on your circumstances. I often describe it like a like a room full of funhouse mirrors. And, uh, you know, a lot of us think about immigrants as being risk, risk takers or, you know, refugees, you know, get on a little raft going across shark infested waters. Um, but you need to really ask yourself, OK, riskier than what? And if they're coming from a country with a lot of, of repres repression and conflict and poverty, like, you know, the odds of them dying if they stay where they are are pretty high. In that case, getting on the boat, you know, with the with the sharks is the smaller the lesser right. of the two risks or you look at say the immigrant you know arrives in a new country and uh because a lot of jobs still are you know through you know networks and you have to have certain sets of skills right. and you look at the skills available to you and you know immigrants often tend to go in places where there are other immigrants and these sort of right. you know mom and pop stores or other uh industries that might be you know particular mm -hmm. to a, one group of, of immigrants so you always hear oh immigrants are entrepreneurial but you know in many cases it's a um, it's a mom and pop kind of situation or you know you go to silicon valley and you you know you hear a lot actually about um, you know all of california the percentage of these you know unicorn startups that were founded by right. immigrants it's it's through the roof and i think some of that has to do with people having built up a sort of a risk muscle 
um, this sort of, you know, practice in doing something. So you're, you know, you, you go to a country you've never been to before, sometimes a country where you don't even speak the language, uh, you become very practiced at doing things that are out of your comfort zone, that are totally new, that are uncertain, and you learn you can do more things. And, you know, the flip side of this is that you look at statistics on social entrepreneurs and some crazy percentage of them are, you know, middle, upper middle class kids, you know, who've got the family backstop. So they, they don't have to go and earn a gazillion dollars before they can, you know, go and, right. and you know, do their do-gooding. Uh, and, and, you know, that's actually a problem because, you know, a lot of the people who've, who've got great ideas and great, you know, experience with the communities that really need a lot of help don't necessarily have all this this social capital to to lean back on and uh and and so it's a it's a very important question that you know, how your background and your 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 financial situation and your social setup affects your your risk taking but they, then again you know some of these rich kids go and start social enterprises to save the world other of them just stay in their comfort zone and then if something unexpected happens to them they fall apart so that's a real difference. You know, there, there are some kids with this background who will go and take risks and others who won't. So none of this is, is set in stone. It's, it's a bunch of different factors affecting each other. So, you know, you write in your book about the millennials. Uh, have we done the millennials a disservice? And I have a couple millennial children, but, you know, it was a generation that I, I don't think there's been a generation that had that organized a childhood ever, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I mean, everything was super mega structured and the outcomes were carefully crafted. And what has your finding shown about that group of people as it comes to risk now? Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so interesting talking about millennials. Cause if you go and, you know, Google, you know, millennials and risk, you see all these crazy headlines of millennials, risk averse, most risk averse generation ever, blah, blah, blah. And you also see the stuff about the helicopter pack parenting, which I think does, has done a disservice. I mean, I just, I look at the, the trick or treating I was allowed to do when I was a kid, or I'd go, I'd ride my right. bike all around and, and uh, had a lot more freedom than I think a lot of the kids today do. And so agree. was taking more risks. So I do think that this, um, this helicopter par parenting has in many ways hurt people who are raised that way. But at the same time, you've got this countervailing factor, which is that, you know, millennials have, have grown up with, you know, time, you know, with a big financial crisis and, and well, you know, they're, they're older now, but, you know, Gen Z is dealing with the, the pandemic, but they grew up with a lot of, uh, of uncertainty with, you know, more student debt than their parents with sure. uh, not as positive an outlook into the future. Uh, you look at, you know, investing right now and obviously, you know, with, with all the money the Fed's been pumping into the market, it's, it's been a, a fairly, fairly safe environment because you just know there's all this money behind it, but that's going to turn around at some point. Right. And, um, you know, is it riskier to invest in a stock market that's three times the level it was a couple years? I think now it's like four times or more right. or a stock market that's kind of been, you know, been going along. So it's not it's not the same risk. Or if you've got a ton of student loan debt and you're paying, I don't know what, seven, eight percent interest on that. And you know that by paying that down, you're automatically uh, 
getting this sort of implied return of that seven to eight percent plus whatever the compounding right um and you see a stock market bubble and you think okay well you know what's the cost benefit here so it's very it's very very different uh so each generation goes through their own historical reality and their own set of of calculations and influences on the risk decisions that they're making and Actually, this term risk averse drives me nuts in general because it's it's often used unfairly and, and, and often pejoratively, you know, towards uh, millennials and towards women in general. And, and I really I've heard so many women that are like, oh, yes, I'm risk averse, not even really knowing what that means. Um, you know, the, the risk averse means that in the same circumstances, you'll take less risk, but the circumstances aren't always the same they're not always same yeah they're not always and i'm the actually same. surprised to hear that i i think in some instances women may be better risk takers but I, I i certainly think so well you know i talked before about this sort of you know risk muscle and one of the areas where some of the research suggests that that women are more comfortable taking risk is in social risk which is you know speaking out and you know saying something when nobody else will say it and the thing about that is that for women in many cases uh, you know, women being the only woman in the room, and uh, when they speak up, they risk being ignored or being told that they're bossy and too pushy, or they'll be ignored, and five minutes later, some guy says the same thing that they just said, and everybody like applauds the guy, and you know the woman doesn't get credit and is called bossy. So women have a lot more practice taking social risks than than most men do. And when you're experienced taking a certain risk, when, you, when that muscle gets stronger, you actually get better at judging the situation. You get, you get tougher, you know, when, you're, when you're, you just expect that you're always going to have negative consequences. You, you don't care as much. It doesn't hurt as much. So that whole equation around social risk and speaking up is very, very different for women uh, than for men. I'll tell you what, you should, uh, if you look into women who are in cybersecurity, you might have some very interesting findings. So, um, I am you know, intrigued. One of, yeah, one of our, I, I'll give you a couple, uh, one major point of reference that I, you may or may not be aware that women in cybersecurity make 30% more than their male counterparts. I did not know that. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little, uh, you know, diversion from the, the general trend. There's very, there's not as many women in the top in the field, but uh, the women that are in the field are highly qualified, um, and they're getting that money not because they're women, but because they're generally better qualified than a lot of the male applicants for for the same type of role. And and I've seen it that um, you know one of our top engineers, uh, she's a threat hunter. Uh, when she starts talking, a lot of people listen because she really does know what she's talking about. And uh, if you look uh, on our just, if you did a count of our playlist and look at the number of guests that we've had on the show that were women, um, it's a very, very significant percentage relative to the entire population that, that's been on the show. So I, I guess maybe cybersecurity is a place where uh, women have found a place to excel and exceed. That's great and, to hear because, you know, you hear nightmare stories about, about tech in, in general. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to hear that story. Oh yeah. I'll, um, I'll send you a link, post the show to one of the episodes where we had one of the industry's top recruiters actually talk about some of the phenomena that are happening with them. And, and that's, that's interesting. I, I guess one thing would be is if you are cognizant and you and self-aware of what your risk appetite is as an individual and you want to change it, do you have some practical advice on how you go about building that risk muscle as the term that you uh, put forth? Yeah, absolutely. And and just to, to add a little clarity around this term, you know, risk appetite, you know, there are all these, these terms that kind of get thrown around. There's, you know, sort of your, your risk tolerance. Um, you, you can have two people with the same risk ad- appetite, um, but the same very, very different amounts of risk tolerance. You know, you, you might perceive risk to be a certain level. Um, so, for example, there was a study of, of Chinese and American students, and everybody thought that the, the Chinese students, or that the American students would be, you know, more risk-seeking. So they gave them the option, you know, do you want to get uh, get paid, you know, 4% flat or variable between 0 and 8%, the variable one supposedly being, being riskier. And yeah. um, they're actually much more similar than they expected, and everyone was surprised, but they went back and they realized that the, the Chinese students actually rated it as much less risky in the first place. So even though they were taking the exact same amount of risk compared to where they were comfortable, uh, the people who saw less risk were actually taking less. You know, their risk tolerance in that case wasn't as high. And so, you know, your risk appetite, you know, how much risk you're willing to take also depends on how much risk you perceive. And risk perception is another one of these very slippery things uh, where that depends on how much control you feel you have, how much knowledge you feel that you have, uh, whether you're doing it on your own or in a group, uh, you know, how much of a safety net you feel you have. Um, and in many cases, that can be uh, you know, how much risk you're taking in one part of your life versus the rest of your your life, you know, if you're going to quit your job and be an entrepreneur, uh, you're going to be more comfortable with more risk if you have a nice big uh, rainy day fund rather than if right. you don't. Ab- so, absolutely. you know, personal financial risk versus the, you know, career risk. So this is all, you know, very, very slippery. But two of the things that I think can help a lot are one, knowledge, you know, study, 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 whatever it is that you are going to be taking a risk in and look at a variety of sources and get a number of opinions. You know, actually, some of the research that uh, that I cite about entrepreneurs is that you know entrepreneurs often often have done more homework around whatever it is they're trying to do. So that knowledge makes them more more confident, you know, assuming that you know what they've learned is positive for it's whatever true, they're going true. into. Um, but but knowledge also makes you feel like you have more control, so that you're you're more likely to you know. To be more comfortable with a higher amount of risk. Um, the other part is having people around you who can give you good advice about whatever that risk is going to be, and people from very different backgrounds, and also people who are willing to take the social risk of telling you what you don't want to hear. As I was I was talking about the yeah. the Aquafina character in Crazy Rich Asians. You know, the best friend who's like, yeah. "Don't wear that stupid dress." Yeah. Um, so those, you know, the, the 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 knowledge and the environment, and 
it also, if it's a specific decision, uh, you can look at your physical environment. Like, say you want to go ask your boss for a raise and you're a little nervous about that. Well, take your boss out for Thai food, order the spiciest dish on the menu, tell them to crank up the air conditioning so it's, it's really cold, and have them put some sort of quick tempo music on. So that, that'll... Um, <laughs> That'll get you really want to get this person out of their comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, what's interesting is, you know, that's all the research shows that, you know, if it's colder, you're going to be more likely to take risks. There's some studies with birds, like when it's colder, obviously the birds are going to work harder to get food and take more risk to get food because they're afraid there's not going to be as, as much of it. Um, And then, you know, the spicy foods is, is so interesting. There are all sorts of stereotypes around, you know, people who like spicy food. And I think there is a, a chicken and the egg thing. Um, because the more you eat spicy food, the more comfortable you're likely to be with certain risks for, for the few hours after you eat it. But, um, but spice also has its own risk producing, uh, factors. I mean, you know, that in really, really hot countries, they put the, the, the hot peppers to, you know, kill the kind of things that might grow in there without refrigeration or, you know, in some cases it's to hide the taste of whatever that is, in which case it is increasing the risk because <laughs> you're eating something you don't know how bad it is. But, you know, so there are actually weird logical explanations for, for some of these things. But if it is a, a, a single risk you need to take on a certain day, look at in your look at your environment. You know, are you comfortable? Are you, you know, are you doing it before lunch or after lunch? Um, and what did you eat for lunch? That that's great advice. I didn't know that. I I'll have to do that with a client sometime and and test this theory out. <laughs> <laughs> they may not want to have dinner with me ever again, but <laughs> what the heck, you know? Go out for some really spicy Thai food, which is delicious. But I love Thai food. Sto- it's so good. Yeah, it's a separate story. But yeah, that that's um that's very interesting. Is there neurobiologically some are people built differently where some people are inherently able to compartmentalize the notions of risk very differently than others and, and break it down into a level where they're like, you know, worst case, oh, well, it's okay. <laughs> well, you know? you know, the, the, um, you know, the research on the, on the genetics of it and the neurobiology is, 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 is not as clear cut as you would hope. Um, there's, there's some research around uh, the relationship between, uh, you know, dopamine and uh, risk taking, but it's, it's, it's very unclear how, how much is genetic and how much is, is, is not. Um, but so I think the, I think some of the, the genetic influence, the neurological influence, I would also almost call like more, you know, innate personality rather than the, okay. the specific neuro- neurobiology of it. Um, and that's, you know, some people are going to be calmer about things. I mean, you look at, at siblings and they're going to come at things from very different uh, attitudes. There is some research about birth order, which also doesn't um, doesn't uh, affect things as much as, as you might guess. I mean, I'm an, I'm an oldest child. So am I. <laughs> Yay, oldest child, you know. <laughs> you get to play banker when you play Monopoly, you know. That's right. All the, all the benefits. You get to put the cards in the clue thing. But then again, like your parents experiment with you. And I remember being really, really mad that 
like seeing the younger kids with bedtimes that that were later than mine was when I was their own age because I guess my parents figured it out you know and you, well, you have all these other responsibilities when you're oldest child so you know it's it's uh they're different uh they're really different influences but but really you know each person has got their own set of things and I think the the biggest determinant is really how aware you are I get asked all the time is there an ideal risk personality type and yeah. my answer is no but um what is the what are the ideal circumstances that correspond to that type? Uh, you know, there's certain certain careers that will attract people with similar similar risk uh, risk types. Um, you know, there you want to see if if your environment really fits if it, if you're comfortable with it. Uh, you know, if you're somebody who is you know very methodical and you tend to be a little bit anxious and not so crazy about change then maybe you want to go work for one of these big bureaucratic corporations and not a startup where you're not going to be so happy. Um, right. But if you are comfortable with change, if you're, you know, pretty calm about dealing with risks and, um, you know, sometimes you're methodical. It means you go and prepare everything, which actually reduces the risk, or maybe you are more of an impulsive type and, you know, startups going to be a much better environment for you. So what you want to do is think about the people around you. If you're the kind of person who goes and leaps before you look, well, maybe you want a best friend who can dial it down a little bit. And if you're a shrinking violet, you know, you want a sort of a cur courageous best friend. I mean, I remember when I was in the in middle school, I was like super shy and I had a I had a good friend who was just you know, I went to a private school and I was super nerdy, nerdy, you know, a student. She went to a public school and you know, she was much more comfortable in lots of situations than I was. I was like really grateful to have a best friend like that who had a, a different relationship with the world and who I could kind of hide behind if I was a little scared. And, and so it, it worked out. You know, in that case, opposites attracted. So bring some contrast to your life. Yes. That's... And practice getting out of your comfort zone. There's one guy I interviewed who'd been, uh, been training to, he wanted to be a professional athlete. Um, and they had a terrible knee injury. So he'd been spending all this time, like not having a social life because he was training all the time. And all of a sudden he's like, he can't have this career. He's been putting everything into, and he had to figure out what was next. And he knew that he was not comfortable in social situations. So he went and deliberately put himself into situations that were strange. I mean, he'd go, he had these sort of odd jobs where, uh, you know, you're promoting a movie or something and you dress up in a weird costume or you go out and, you know, hand out flyers yeah. to people or, you know, he'd, he'd make himself go and sit next to someone next to an extra stranger in a bar, which was like way not his comfort zone. And he's actually a life coach now, but he, I, I was going to say, I would hope that person was immensely successful because I would have bet that they were going to be very successful. He's I, actually, he's, I had such a great conversation, uh, a series of conversations uh, with him and um, he had a lot of really good advice. And, and he also talked about the importance of, of really knowing your values and your purpose. Um, he, he was coaching couples for a while. Actually, he'd been a, a relationship coach before, um, wow. before he you know, broadened. Um, and he talked about, you know, the kind of risks that you're taking if you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't care about the same things that you do. You want to make sure that you understand which, which values you're willing to put at risk and which ones not. 
and you know finding someone who's compatible who fits with your your risk fingerprint so i'm gonna change topics here real quick because um i i do want to address this because uh, i think our listeners are going to want to know understand it is that if you look at companies when uh we help a company define risk there's a lot of quantitative analysis that happens and you look at probability and likelihood of loss and multiply it together and say this is what's going to happen that's great uh but Ultimately, what we have seen intuitively is that an organization's risk fingerprint, so not an individual's, but an organization's, is somewhat of the sum of a lot of the fingerprints that comprise that organization. And, and you could do all the quantitative analysis in the world, but if, if there's not that emotional connection made to that organization's uh, collective, it won't really matter. It, it, you know, it just won't matter. How do you, as a leader in the organization, change your organization's risk fingerprint? Because you realize a lot of the things that may be in play may be adverse to taking on certain risks that that organization needs to to succeed. Well, I think some of it has to do with the sort of leading from the top, the, you know, the example that you set. Uh, not only the risks you take, but the organization, and and actually increasingly people are realizing that, you know, the the personal risks that you take as well have a lot of significance for your organization. You know, the the cheating on your spouse, the drunk driving, the you know throwing a tantrum if the kind of tequila you want is not available. Um, you know, those sort of things are also signaling to your organization, you know, that they have a leader who is providing a a risk umbrella. That's going to, you know, that's going to protect them or or not. So that's that's the beginning. Having a, a CEO with a healthy risk relationship, you know, having a board that's willing to ask the right questions about risk, and then you know, in the recruiting process of the organization, you know, figure figure out what your mix is and if that's ideal. You know, if you're an organization that sees yourself as innovating, um, and you have a bunch of you know, bureaucrats at heart, um, and if you don't have the kind of people who are willing to take the social risk of speaking out and saying, hey, you know, there's a great rhino we need to talk about, um, you need to change that risk. So that means that the, the recruiting processes need to change. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've read a lot about the, the importance of diversity for, for good decision-making, for- Right, diversity of thought is super important. Yeah, and for, you know, for marketing, making sure you've got people on your team who you know, who know what your customers are, are going to think about or be, or be worried about. Um, but a lot of that doesn't explicitly take into account risk, you know, risk fingerprints and, and risk attitudes. And, and so I think that in the recruiting process, you do want to think a little bit more about, you know, how does this person think about risk? And you can ask questions like, you know, what's the biggest risk you ever take? taken you know what's the biggest risk you've ever not taken what are here's a couple of risk scenarios what would you do you kind of get a sense of of you know who would be willing to you know risk customer safety in order to get a bigger quarterly bonus or not maybe that's not the person you want to hire right um but but a lot of it is you know explicitly thinking about your team's comfort with with taking risks their ability to take smart risks to really evaluate the cost benefit and the probabilities of, of various outcomes, uh, their ability to adjust their behavior to 
to reduce those risks, you know, because, you know, you, you can assign a number to the probability of some sort of risk, but that's got to change if you feel like your team is prepared for dealing with it or, yep. or not. Um, and then and really think about uh, the culture that, that you want and, and how your people support that or don't, how the incentives that you give them uh, support good risk taking or, or not. Uh, you know, this sort of the ethical environment that you are projecting and supporting through your key, per key performance inject, uh, uh, incentives and things like that. You know, I'm going to be curious to see the comments we get from our listeners on on that last bit there. Because <laughs> 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 you're absolutely right. Um, but it's also everything you said I would characterize as a big, giant gray rhino right here. You know, that's, it's a, that's a hard conversation. Um, it is. It's the kind of thing I call a meta gray rhino. It's sort of a you know structural situation that you need to resolve if you want to be really effective at addressing the individual gray rhinos that are that are coming at you. And this whole decision making, organizational culture, uh, you know, strategy, ethics, uh, those are all huge meta gray rhinos that the companies need to to pay attention to. Absolutely. Well, we are at the hour. And we want to give you a chance to plug some things. You've been gracious enough to share some great advice with us. Uh, any, anything you'd like to plug? We'll have links to your book, by the way. Love we, that. We'll put them in the show notes. Love that. Yeah. Well, um, for people who want to to learn more, my website is thegrayrhino.com. Gray with an A. E will get you there too. Um, you can find out more about both the gray rhino and you are what you risk. Um, people have asked me which one to read first. And, uh, you know, Gray Rhino is really more about the analyzing the event itself. And You Are What You Risk is about the, the personality. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Wooker, W-U-C-K-E-R. And you can also find me on LinkedIn where uh, I have a, uh, a newsletter that comes out you can sign up for called Around My Mind that comes out sometimes more regularly than other times, but hopefully more regularly in the future. That, that's great. We'll put links to all of those in the show notes. And uh, we'll make sure that uh, when we uh, publish this, which will be this coming Monday, um, we'll have links to your Twitter handles and everything else there as well. And uh, fantastic work you're doing. Uh, we look forward to hearing a lot more from you. I'll also put a link to you. It did a great TED Talk. Uh, I'm going to put a link to that in there as well. Um, I think people, it would be really well advised for them to take a listen uh, as to what you had to say. Um, and I think uh, what you're doing is making a difference in, and we're all appreciative of that. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you today. Mm -hmm.